Welcome to Improv for the Podcast. On this week's episode, we have a very special guest who will talk about their improvisational journey. We'll play a couple games and most importantly, learn how they improv their life. Let's hit it. Welcome to Improv for the Podcast. On this week's episode, I am joined by a very special guest. I'm your host, Michael Lee Evans, and today we're sitting down with Michael Lee Evans. That's right. Hey, Michael Lee Evans, how are you doing this evening? Well, Michael, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on this evening. Uh, I'm really excited to be here on our own show. You know, it's it's definitely different sitting in the guest chair. You know, it's all, it's kind of a whole different feel, but I am really excited to be here. Uh, you know, I've watched a lot of these episodes from the other chair, so now I'm excited to be sitting over here for a change, you know, get into it, get into what improv means to me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, of course, Michael, you know, we have hosted this podcast for about, uh, you know, this is our 17th episode, so I just thought, you know, this was the right time of year just for uh, for us to pop on and, you know, speak on the mic a little bit, just get a chance to share our own ideas and thoughts about improv out as we head into the new year, 2023. So uh, thank you so much for having the time to come on. Uh, now, uh, as always, before we get started with our episode, Michael, if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself, what's your relationship to IFTP, how long have you been involved, and uh, what do you do here? Well, of course, Michael, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, so I first got involved with IFTP in August 2021 uh, is when I kind of first found out, as I mentioned on some of the other podcasts, I got involved because... Uh, I found it online through a Cool Beans comedy class I found. I came to the theater, audited a class, and I met our dear friend Daryl, who was on an earlier episode of the show, and Matthew Moore, uh, the founder of IFTP. And in that stand-up class, they mentioned Improv for the People to me. And I had been looking to get back into improv comedy kind of as the pandemic, you know, we're still in it, but things were changing. Uh, I was looking for something in person, and IFTP was the place. And, you know, I had... Uh, experience doing improv in the past, but had stepped away from it for a while just due to different things in life. And IFTP was the place. So uh, as soon as I could, I signed up for a Wednesday night class, I think back in September 2021. And I began to take improv again for the first time in several years. And it was so exciting. And, uh, you know, I just kept coming back and meeting amazing people every week. And over time, uh, eventually the opportunity came up uh, for me to uh, move from being a student to being a faculty member here at Improv for the People. And that happened uh, earlier in 2022, in about uh, June 2022, uh, was my first opportunity to move on to the faculty where I uh, started teaching IFTP's first sketch comedy class, something that we're looking to bring back pretty soon here in the next few weeks. And in that sketch comedy class, I got to bring some of my experience of doing sketch in college and post-grad uh, to bring that as a class here where I had some amazing people come in. We wrote some sketches, put together a show, and did some incredible work on the IFTP stage all in just a few weeks. It was incredible, the work they did. So uh, after I taught the sketch class, I was looking for other things that I could do here at IFTP, and that's when we got started doing this podcast. And now here we are, 17-ish weeks later, and I'm interviewing myself. So, you know, things are going well. 
<laughs> well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Michael. Uh, I don't want to give too much away because we're going to get into it in our interview. But before we do, as always, as a tradition here on Improv for the Podcast, as we continue to work our way to earn one million of anything uh, in order to fully fund and light our sign, we need to play a couple rounds of three things. And I'm not even going to ask because I know you know how to play and you know it's going to get personal. It's time to get self-reflective. All right, Michael. So let's go ahead and take a look at our categories. And I just want to preface this and say that neither host Michael or guest Michael has seen these categories because I had my wife come up with them and she texted them to me and I haven't looked at the text yet. So I don't know what the categories are. So we're going to find out. All right, here we go. These are three things. Favorite articles of clothing. Ooh, okay. Uh, I'm going to say hoodies. One. Uh, uh, pants. Two. Just got to keep those up there. And oversized t-shirts. Three. These are three things. Podcasts you listen to. Ah, okay. Uh, a few podcasts. The uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia podcast. One. Um, the, uh, I hate to admit, part of my take, I just, uh, during football season, I got to get into it. Two. Um... Hmm. And uh, uh, I'm going to say the film re-roll. Three. These are three things. Influential comedy or acting figures. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, this is tough. This is tough. I'm going to have to say Mitch Hedberg. Rest in peace. All-time great stand-up. One. Listen to his stuff if you've never heard it. It's on Spotify. Look it up on YouTube. He is incredible. Uh, I'm going to have to say Tim Robinson. I just, I love, I think you should leave. And I think it's so fresh. And the episode format of 16 minutes is incredible. Two. Um, ooh. Uh, and then I'm going to say Dave Chappelle, but Chappelle show. Three. Uh, the recent stuff, not as much, not as much. So we'll say <laughs> Chappelle show specifically. These are three things. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, Michael, I knew you were going to say those answers because you're me. But I do want to dig into them a little bit. Uh, so we'll start with that first category, uh, articles of clothing. I, I, You know, I think you had some really solid choices there. Um, pants. Just you like pants? You're a fan? Yeah, you know, if, if I think about it, uh, between pants and shorts, I, I like pants more. You know, don't get me wrong. Shorts are good too, but I just like pants. I just like pants. I think pants are a great article of clothing. And of course, hoodies are, are awesome. And uh, oversized t-shirts like the boxy fit. I like those as well. You know, that's uh, kind of a, my flavor of the times. I don't really ever wear that on the podcast, but, uh, you know, because I like to keep it classy, but in regular life, that's what I do. Yeah. Well, I have to agree with you there, Michael. I am a fan of pants. So shout out pants. We're both wearing pants here tonight, so well done us. All right, uh, that second category, uh, podcasts you listen to. Really? Um, you know, Always Sunny, love it, love it. Critical Role, that's a cool one. Uh, uh, for people who haven't heard of that, that is a podcast, I think, where the hosts, they play movies as adapted D&D campaigns, which is a lot of fun. It's pretty cool, really nerdy, good stuff, but pardon my take, come on, man. It's in Barstool Sports, come on. I know. I know. Yep, you're right. Critical Role is awesome. The Always Sunny podcast, great uh, behind-the-scenes look into the show. But uh, yeah, I, I know. Pardon my take. It's kind of 
uh, like I I enjoy the show, but uh, yeah, I know Barstool sucks. Uh, that's a weird one. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. But uh, they do a great job during the football season, just recapping everything in a dumb, hilarious way. And uh, I'm a big football fan. So that's when I'm the most avid listener. Then the rest of the year, not as much, just because other sports aren't really my thing. But, yeah, it's like a guilty pleasure podcast. You know, sometimes we like stuff that's funky. Yeah, it is what it is. All right, all right. Well, I hear hear you there. Uh, We do love a good football recap, especially when it's hilarious. So finally, that last category, influential comedy and acting figures. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, I love the people you picked. I would do a much longer list because you mostly stuck with comedy. But uh, I know we love actors too. So yeah, Mitch Hedberg, killer, amazing, stand-up, legend, uh, all those guys. Dave Chappelle, that Chappelle show work is just, I mean, that's really when he was at his finest and I think he walked away at the right time. You know, you can never have, you can have too much of a good thing sometimes. So it's good, you know, everything in moderation. And even with the Chappelle show, I think it, the amount of time it went on for it, I was to say Key and Peele is up there. Um, and Tim Robinson. Love Tim Robinson. So you nailed it with those picks. Uh, it's like you're me. <laughs> yeah, it is like I'm you. Anyway, uh, I love all those shows. And, uh, you know, I could honestly list so many more. I mean, I, I do love actors too. I went to school for acting. That's literally what my degree is in. So I have an appreciation for, uh, you know, not just comedy. It's just that comedy is my main passion. So that's why I just listed all people related to comedy. But, you know, I do, I do love me good actor as well. You know, I honestly really am a fan of Daniel Radcliffe's, like, career post-Harry Potter. Really, he's done a lot of interesting stuff. I was very lucky. I had the chance to see him on Broadway and uh, had to succeed in business without really trying. Um, and that was the same summer that the last Harry Potter movie was coming out. And just, you know, it's hard to... Well, I don't know, but I imagine it's incredibly difficult after you play the role that's a face of a franchise, especially like Harry Potter, to go and do other things afterwards. But he's found a way to do it, and he's just kind of enjoying his life, picking roles and projects that are fun, interesting, probably challenging, and having a blast. Like, that Daniel Radcliffe is living. You know, he just had that Weird Al movie come out, like Broadway, Weird Al. He's going to be in Broadway again next year, I think, in the Merrily We Roll Along, Stephen Sondheim revival Man is killing it. So that's like an acting influence in a way. All right. Well, I will say Daniel Radcliffe is a great pick and all those other things. Uh, And, you know, Michael, as much as I want to talk about uh, Daniel Radcliffe, Weird Al, Dave Chappelle, yikes, uh, and all those other things we mentioned, uh, you know, I think we should get to what this interview is really about. And that, of course, is improv. That's why we're here. We're on improv for the podcast, uh, the show that Matt and I, that Matt and we... uh, (laughs) together, And I want to get to the root of it to understand your improv story, what it means to you, how you got started, and uh, just hear about your experience, you know. So let's get into that. So Michael, when was the first time you were exposed to improv, heard about it, saw something, watched something, maybe you were in a class? What was that like? When was that? Wow. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a great question, Michael. We did a good job writing these. Um you know, I first uh, was exposed to improv. At least I, you know, I sat down and thought about this a lot. And I don't, um, whose line was definitely a part in the early days, but it wasn't the first time I heard about it. I'm pretty sure it was in middle school. 
in my theater arts elective that we all had to take in seventh grade. Uh, my teacher, Miss Cannon, shout out Miss Cannons. I did some theater stuff with her when I was in high school as well. Really awesome lady. I hope she's doing well. Um, we just, we, in seventh grade, we had to take all these different electives, like a quarter, each quarter of the year. So you took like art, Spanish, uh, theater, and then I don't actually remember the other one, but you took one more. There were four electives. Oh, computers. Yeah. We, computers barely mattered at school and I'm not even that old, which is crazy. Anyway. Uh, so I took the theater class there and I had been doing theater all while growing up. Like my mom shoved me in a play, I think as, sh as soon as she could in, uh, you know, like 1999, 2000, right around there. I think I was in Lion King and Shrek and all, all these silly things when, <laughs> when I was a little kid, uh, you know, just random parts. And I had been doing theater pretty actively in different performance groups and opportunities, singing, dancing, you know, all that sort of thing from a young age. Um, but I hadn't, you know dove into my theater craft as much yet and I think middle school started some of that being in this elective class and I remember we just played some silly games that my teacher explained to us were called improv and improv is like acting but you make it up and I think that's kind of how we framed it and you know I think we just played silly games like three-headed expert and you know things like that that really set you up well with a structure but they get you going and for me these games were so exciting I had a lot of fun doing them and my kind of my early performance days in relationship with school were a bit strange because outside of school, I was super into theater and acting, performing, singing, dancing, all that stuff. But at school, I was kind of embarrassed about those things. Um, so people thought I was a shy, quiet kid. But, you know, in my heart of hearts, that's the thing I wanted to be doing. And it was so easy to get into that outside of school. But in school, there was, you know, ah, just social pressure. And uh, early, mid-2000s, you know, just... Uh, Kids, kids were mean when you were into that stuff. So I wasn't always too vocal about it, that that was my thing, but I did enjoy it. And I remember not long after kind of doing that, uh, like, improv little unit in our quarter-long acting class, uh, there was some sort of dance or event at the middle school for seventh graders, and I wish I could remember this more, and I, I have a couple friends that I need to check with to, like, verify. But we had some sort of, like, seventh grade event that you went to. And I'm sure I asked someone to go with me, and they said no. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I went with anyone. But at this event, I was like, well, I've done improv. I, I think I kind of want to get up there and do some comedy. Because there was some sort of talent show element that you just kind of signed up right there in the moment. You know, it was like an improv talent show almost. And again, the details could be fuzzy. But I remember signing up and... I just kind of went on stage and I think I did some like silly accents that I knew I could do because I, from a young age, I always like to try and do accents and I can do a few. I'm not the best, but I, you know, I got some in the wheelhouse, I think, as every person who has done acting does. So I just got up there on stage and started, you know, making, I think I was talking like an Irish person, but Irish Scottish, I didn't have the finesse to like know the difference I'd be oh top of the morning to you laddie so great to see ya oh it's amazing being here right at uh the middle school here with all the other kids you know uh, we're having a great time tonight you know drinking the pineapple and pineapple juice and uh eating the Hawaiian pizza over there and uh yeah you know it's a great team uh, just something silly like that I I may have done a few voices or impressions I don't really know but I did that at a young age and 
I don't remember the reception. I don't know if that was like social suicide. I mean, I was already kind of a more of like the loser nerd group anyway, so maybe it didn't matter. But that was kind of my early forays into improv specifically. Acting and performing, singing had always been a part of what I was doing, but that idea of kind of getting up and making something up on the spot was those were my first ventures into it. And I think around that time as well, my parents introduced me to Who's Line. Um, and we, we would just watch reruns on TV because we didn't, we didn't have cables, so it was just like, you know, what, what the antenna got. This was before uh, TV switched to digital. Um, <laughs> so I think we just, yeah, I don't know, it would come on maybe TV Land or one of those networks, and we would watch reruns of Who's Line sometimes. And sometimes it would get a little racy for my folks, so we, uh, we'd skip some stuff, or I didn't always get the humor, but I did enjoy it. Wow. <laughs> Talk much? No, but uh, uh, that that is a really great story. And yeah, I think like you said, always having been involved with acting and uh, performing, singing and dancing, but improv was introduced as a separate concept in middle school. Um, I'm like 95% sure of that. So thank you for sharing. And uh, I, yeah, I know Whose Line is definitely very influential. I think for like the millennials, maybe older millennials as well. I think I'm at the tail end of being a millennial. Uh, but I know that was a very huge thing for our generation, for a lot of people exposed or learned more about improv. And I think improv was something that was well-known in larger cities before then, especially in the 90s and whatnot too, but it didn't, uh, you know, people in other parts of the country had to learn about it through things like Who's Line, uh, because Who's Line, you know, broadcast nationwide. You know, not everyone who lives in different parts of the country uh, have improv shows around them or are, are aware of the comedy scene. So Who's Line really was able to make improv sort of mainstream almost, you know, let, let like the common man know what it is. Um, so I think it's an important thing. And, you know, we've, we've talked about it a lot on this show, but uh, for getting improv out there to people who might not normally be exposed to it is a good thing. It made it accessible. Man, you know, a specific type of improv, but it made it accessible. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I, I wish uh, you could remember more about that, that middle school show, because I would love to hear about it. And right, we do need to go back and ask some folks from middle school that are still our friends. Uh, all right, so with that said, so you learned about improv at this young age. Um, you kind of played with it a little bit. You know, you had your own version of getting up on stage in front of the mic and doing some funny voices, you know, playing some characters, doing some bits. You know, we love doing bits. But um, what, did, what did your improv kind of look like after that? Was there more that you did? Um, like going further through middle school, high school, and then leading into college. What did that look like? Yeah, so uh, that was in seventh grade, I think, when I first learned about it. And, um, you know, as far as my memory serves, I continued to do acting and, like, community theater a lot. Uh, I did that a lot in middle school. I remember I did, like, Peter Pan when I was in eighth grade. And then, you know, you finish middle school, and you go into high school. And honestly... I wasn't really doing improv specifically. I was mostly doing musical theater and, like, summer camps. I know I played, like, definitely some different improv games here or there. Like, I did summer camps. Um, and, you know, if you're having to entertain a bunch of kids who are into acting for, like, a week or a few weeks, uh, you probably play some improv games here or there, you know? So I think that was definitely something I was doing. And I always liked being funny, or trying to be funny, I think is more accurate. Um, you know, and making jokes with my friends, that's something everyone likes. You know, you like to joke around with people you care about, but that was something that I always enjoyed. And 
through different moments growing up, I think I would find opportunities to do little bits of comedy. Like I know, I think when I was maybe in ninth grade, I w- was involved at my church. We were doing like, we made little comedy videos and I remember kind of being uh, around that and helping with that. Uh, we made like a MacBook Air parody. I don't know if anyone remembers, but when like the first MacBook Air come out, came out, they had that uh, video where they put it inside the manila envelope uh, where it was, I'm a new soul, I can feel the strange world helping. And uh, yeah, they played that song and we made some parody of that. I don't even remember, but I think I was part of that group that helped make like the MacBook Air commercial parody, the manila envelope. Anyway, uh, so I wouldn't say I did improv explicitly, uh, in middle school or even in high school, but I was always around and involved in theater. I was always performing. Uh, in high school, uh, I took a little bit of time off my freshman year uh, from doing theater. I did like a drama class at school, but then I had an injury, was out of school for a while. That's a whole other story. Uh, concussions are dangerous. Be careful, especially if you're a kid. Uh, yeah, concussions. They could knock you out for a while. Crazy stuff. Anyway, Uh, So high school, I continued to do theater my sophomore, junior, and senior years. And uh, particularly my junior and senior years, that's when things got really serious about uh, performing. Uh, My junior year, I got involved with a group outside of school where we would uh, work on monologues and scenes and showcases and even put on shows. Uh, With that group, I did Into the Woods and different things like that. And uh, I actually had the opportunity with that group to go to New York and study at uh, an acting studio there just for a week called Atlantic Acting Studio. And during our trip there, part of that experience of going to that acting studio was that we got to do more improv. Um, And this was at a whole other level than anything I had done before. Um, Just because, you know, community theater, you, you always play short form kind of structured games. But at this acting studio experience, I remember we did get to do some improv exercises, and improv exercises in character related to the work we were doing. We were doing some scene study work, some monologues, and things like that, and I remember really enjoying that work that we got to do. Um, So improv was always kind of there in the background. It was like something we'd play for fun, but it wasn't the serious work, and I think that's how I define it uh, through most of my life, through high school. Uh, And then college is maybe where things take a bit of a turn. All right, Michael. So what I'm getting from all of this is that you're kind of a theater kid. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm glad that knowledge is finally out there now. It's important that people know that Michael, I am a theater kid. So just uh, like that's that's a label, you know, that's a warning that people need to be aware of when they meet me. So you grew up. You did a lot of performing growing up. You were in a lot of plays, shows, musicals. That was a big part of your life. And improv was something that popped up every now and then as something that was fun, that was comedic. Um, I also know, uh, I don't think you mentioned it, but I remember that generally in the roles that you did and any of the acting work you did, you did always prefer comedy. That was something that you just enjoyed more uh, than dramatic work. It just You felt it came more naturally to you. Uh, do you agree? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, In high school, you know, as you kind of learn more about acting, and I had started to think about in high school acting programs, you know, I was going to graduate, I wanted to go somewhere, and I knew I wanted to study acting uh, in my junior year and then going into my senior year. It was what I wanted to go into. There wasn't really a subject or any area of school I was interested in. It was just performance and the arts, and I had to find a way to do that. 
Um, so I, I, you know, started working on that. I remember my senior year that fall, like working with someone, a mentor on monologues and kind of figuring out material to send off and, you know, upload YouTube videos to some of colleges and things like that. And I just always found that the dramatic stuff was harder for me and not just monologues, but even in like scene work and things like that. The comedic roles were always easier. It was easier to make choices and make decisions and become a distinct character. And I think something I've always struggled with is translating that, that skill set into more dramatic work. I don't know about now, but at least back then, it was definitely something that was a challenge. I preferred the comedic stuff because it felt easier and I enjoyed it more. I had more fun. So I think that underlying desire to do comedy was always there within me, within my soul. Ah, okay. Okay, yeah. So comedy was just kind of, it was always, it was in your heart. It was in your dreams. It was in your mind. You always wanted to be doing it. And you do the dramatic stuff, but maybe not always with the same passion or the same, I don't know. Comedy, you were like a moth to a flame. And you also enjoyed dramatic work, but didn't, you know, not, not as much. The passion wasn't there as much, which I can totally understand. Okay, so we finished high school. You auditioned for acting programs. I assume you got, uh, you hopefully found one or got into one somewhere, and that's where you chose to go to college. So let's talk about that. Uh, kind of moving out of high school into college. What was that journey like? Did you do improv in college? Yes. So I did apply for a number of different acting programs, uh, just kind of a shotgun approach. And uh, the one I actually chose and ended up going to, uh, I think for a number of reasons. One, because I got in. Uh, two, they gave me money. And three, my sister also went to the same school. Uh, was Azusa Pacific University, which is, uh, you know, not too far outside of Los Angeles. Um, I chose to go there, I mean, for <laughs> those three reasons I listed. But I think part of it was uh, I just went and visited and I really liked the people that I met. And not to say I was, like, the greatest acting town of all time. I, I know I wasn't, but I was all right. I knew what I was doing and, you know, had more to learn. Definitely had more to learn. But I liked the feel of APU. And I know now, reflecting back on it, APU is not the greatest acting program in the world. You know, it is an acting program, and I don't regret going there. But, you know, I, I know what it is, and I know its place in the world. I think that's important to have that perspective. But... Uh, I did choose to go there and join their BFA in acting program. And that was the first time in my life where it was like, this is what you're doing. This matters. And that four years was, was a dream. Honestly, the work I got to do, the classes I got to take were such a blast. And that really kind of shaped me and got me to where, helped me get to where I am today in terms of how I view comedy and performing and acting. So in that four-year program, kind of the goal of that program was to uh, teach you how to be an actor for the stage and the screen. You know, it was kind of, those are two different things that you're acting for. Stage acting and screen acting are not the same. There's a lot of differences. And the goal of the program was to teach you how to do that successfully and then hopefully learn a little bit about the business of Hollywood and then send you off on your way, you know, as so many BFA programs do. They load you up with debt and then tell you to be in one of the least profitable professions for most folks. But that's another story. The cost of college is bad for everyone. Anyway, uh, so I loved my time at APU, Azusa Pacific University. I loved the classes I took. My professors were incredible people. My friends that I made that I'm still friends with now are uh, such fantastic folk. And each year we got to explore different facets of acting. You know, we're doing 
uh, beginning screen acting. We're, we're studying movement for the actor, voice for the actor, Shakespeare, da, da, da. But in my sophomore year, uh, I remember in particular, that's when we got to do a semester of improv. Ah, oh, improv. Yes, a semester of improv. And this was a big deal because this was the first time in my life I was taking a class solely dedicated to improv. Improv had uh, been something, as I had mentioned earlier, that, that popped up over the years. But this was the first time it was like, we're coming here to study improv. We're going to do improv every time we're in this class. That's what it's all about. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, the professor I had for that class, her name is Dr. Monica Gannis. She is an incredible woman who uh, has been involved in acting and comedy uh, for such a long time. She is an icon, a legend, truly, and kind of like a personal hero of mine. But Dr. Monica Gannis just taught us so much about improv and I think did such a good job of introducing those of us who hadn't really done it before, those of us who had only done short-form improv before, and really kind of opening that world up. Uh, Dr. Gannis, she was on Mork and Mindy back in the 1980s uh, with Robin Williams, and you can go back and find clips of her on the show. Um, so she had stories about, you know, working with Robin Williams and uh, different comedy icons, Pee Wee Herman, uh, so just the knowledge and experience and wisdom she brought to comedy and opening up improv was just was huge for me and I think really influential. And in that class, we also, as a homework assignment, had to read the book Truth in Comedy, uh, written by Del Close and Sharna Halpern, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, Truth in Comedy is one of those books that probably every improviser either knows about or has read. Like, people who are, who are, who are super into it, not everyone, but... You know, people who are like, oh, I'm into improv. You know, people like me, unfortunately, uh, they know that book, Truth and Comedy. But it's a really great introduction to kind of some of the basic concepts of improv and what comedy is and what it means. And really the basic idea of it is that the truth is funny. It's not trying to be funny that's funny. It's you being truthful that is funny. Um, and it's a great book. And kind of one of the first times I started reading books solely focused about improv. Uh, I got some recommendations from her. I know we wrote a few papers while we were in that class. And gosh, I just loved it, getting to come in and do short-form exercises, long-form exercises, and just really dedicate a semester to studying improv. And then at the end of that semester, we got to do a showcase as well, which was so, so, so cool. Um, so that class really opened things up for me. And I think for the first time in my life, it was like, wow. Uh, I can do improv. Like, improv is a thing. And I feel like it, it, it kind of gels and it kind of clicks for me. Um, so that was, that was so important. And I'm so thankful for that class. Shout out Dr. Monica Gannis. Um, additionally, during that program uh, that I was in, the acting program, uh, we also, for the first time, I think maybe in my freshman year, was the first time I went and saw a professional improv show over at the Groundlings. Because um, I had never, I mean, I'd seen Who's Line, but I'd never really seen an improv show before. Uh, so that was also largely influential, getting to go to the Groundlings, those hallowed halls, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, Will Ferrell, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, blah, 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 Will Forte, you know, like all these people who you know about or have seen on SNL, all these famous comedians, right? And so many more. I mean, the Groundlings is uh, kind of a LA icon. It's been around since the 1970s. A lot of amazing folks have passed through there. So getting to go see shows there with friends, uh, doing an improv class really kind of started to get me clicked. I was like, oh, I think comedy comedy is more the direction I want to go with my life and in my performance. Like, I'll do the dramatic stuff. Sometimes I do enjoy it, but comedy is my main focus. 
And that desire and want to do comedy only expanded the further I got into college. So sophomore year, I did my first improv class. Bada boom, bada bing. Uh, that was great. It was a beautiful semester. And then I continued to be hungry for it because that semester ended. And I was like, oh, well, now what? Um, so that led me into my junior year of college, which is where I started to really embrace these comedy aspirations, I think. In my junior year of college, I took started taking improv classes out outside of school. I went to the Second City in Hollywood, which, rest in peace, I don't think is around anymore. I'm not sure, but... Some cool folks there. I did a class there. I really enjoyed it. I, I really loved my time. I also was found an opportunity to take a sketch comedy class at my school, which uh, my professor, Susan Isaacs, incredible person. She's done a ton of great work in comedy. She's been in Parks and Recreation, Seinfeld. She's written an awesome book called Angry Conversations with God. Uh, Susan Isaacs was a hero. So but Monica Gannis and Susan Isaacs were like the two figures in college that really kind of like unlocked my mind and made me want, pointed me in the direction towards comedy and improvisation. Uh, doing a sketch comedy class was so, so, so cool. Getting to write our own work, workshop it, improvise with one another week in and week out, and then put on a Saturday Night Lifestyle show at the end of the year with digital shorts and live content and song parodies was an incredible opportunity. So every year I got into college, I just embraced comedy more and more and more. And finally, that led to my senior year. I know, I'm so concise. Uh, that led to my senior year, where in my senior year, I took that sketch comedy class again. I, gosh, what did I do? I helped write some skits for different things going around, like on campus-wide. And uh, a friend formed, and shout out uh, Kit Myring, uh, for starting the improv club at Azusa Pacific University called the Zookeepers. And I had the opportunity to audition and join uh, the school's first improv team. So I joined the improv team, continued to do sketch comedy and help with random skits around campus here and there. Senior year was like, I, I became locked in. I was like, comedy, sketch, improv, this is what I love. And I know that after I graduate from college, I want to get into these things and really embrace them. You know, you're, senior year, you're full of high hopes because you're like, I'm a senior, I'm finishing college, I'm hungry for the real world. And, you know, senior year was awesome. I really loved it. I uh, had a lot of great memories with friends that year. And then with our program, kind of how it ends, you're, uh, there's two kind of capstone things that you do. Uh, you write a big paper, and then you do an acting showcase. And every senior at Azusa Pacific writes a capstone paper. It's, it's a senior thesis. That's what it is. And my senior thesis that I wrote, which is a bit silly, but I, I stand by it, is that the idea, the importance of comedy... Uh, both in education and just in general in the world. And little did I know how the education part would affect me later. But uh, the importance of comedy within uh, just life. And I talked about how it mattered in education and how it mattered in important political debates as, you know, kind of a social lubricant, gross, um, but how it kind of helps ease into things and more challenging topics to discuss. But comedy can, can get you can get discussions to where they need to be, and then they can get more serious from there, and how it can help in the classroom establishing and building relationships, and that some of the best and most impactful teachers I felt I had had were the ones who could joke around and be funny with us, but serious in the right moments as well. So all in all, uh, college ended with me knowing I loved comedy, I knew it was important in my life, and I wanted to pursue it. And at my senior showcase, I felt I did well with 
the comedy part of it and not as much the drama stuff. Woo! Wow. Yeah, college sounds pretty jam-packed, but uh, it sounds like those two professors you had, Dr. Monica Gannis and Professor Susan Isaacs, were both such important figures in kind of getting you to figure out what you really did enjoy and wanted to do. So you, you graduated college, uh, you did that showcase, you graduated college, and then life gets real, right? Life gets real. You graduate college. Um, you know, I, I know you said coming out of senior year, you know, you're coming in hot. You're feeling good. You're like, I finished college. Boom, I got a degree. I'm ready to go take on the world. Um, but things get real after that, don't they? You know, college is, college is a cool place because it is pretty safe. You know, because you're there, you're in a world where a lot of your needs are met. You know, you have somewhere to live. Uh, you have food, even if you're struggling, you know, there's, there's food around. It's, it's safer than the real world, which is probably why it's so expensive. Um, so what did things look like coming out of college and kind of leading up to your time joining and finding uh, Improv for the People? What did that look like? Whew. Um, yeah, you said it. College is safer than the real world and in real life. And coming out of college, you know, was kind of a slap in the face. Like, life got real because then it's just like, you don't have school anymore. You lose that structure that you're given. And it's just kind of you left the wolves to figure everything out. Whew. So in college, uh, things were good. I graduated and started trying to take on the whole acting thing, the whole comedy thing, while also just trying to live and eat and pay rent. Uh, so immediately, the first job I got out of college, I was working for the Geek Squad, and that didn't go well. So then I started working at Target. I didn't like that, so I started working at an ice cream place. I did a lot of job hopping in the first six to eight months out of college. I think I had five to six different jobs uh, less than a year after graduating college, which, whew, I don't know. Uh, I guess that means I was good at interviewing, but bad at uh, wanting to stay. I was never fired. I just... Didn't like the job, so I tried to find other opportunities that made more or similar amounts of money. All right. Uh, anyway, uh, I haven't been fired yet. It could happen, though, sometime in my life, you know, because that just happens, and that's life. But I hope not to be. Anyway, uh, so after I was struggling going from job to job, I was also attempting to uh, make my agent happy. I somehow got an agent and was trying to go on these auditions, and they were just all kind of garbage. Um, you know, nothing really came of them. I'd go to these random pieces of crap auditions. I'd show up. I auditioned for, like, a JCPenney kids catalog for some reason my agent sent me out on. I have a young look. I have a young face. The only reason I have a beard is uh, to look slightly older, uh, so that for my wedding I at least look like an adult when I did get uh, married pretty recently. Um, <laughs> So I, I had a young look, and a lot of the auditions I went on, I think there were two things that were true about these auditions. I didn't do that well, and they just weren't the right thing for me. It was probably both those things. I think uh, I'm not a traditional type, and I have a unique approach to things, which isn't always good, and it, those auditions were not really what I wanted to be doing. So in addition to trying to do all these auditions and whatnot, I was also trying to still do comedy, and that's when I started... Uh, I had done some Second City, uh, and now I wanted to try UCB, because uh, coming out of college, UCB is what I had learned about next. I was like, oh, that's where Amy Poehler uh, came from. I love Amy Poehler, Parks and Recreation, uh, uh, best show. And, you know, all the different comedians, Ben Schwartz, Aziz Ansari, Donald Glover, all the different people to come out of there. So I, I fully went into the UCB mode, and I went UCB hard. You know, I was reading the book. I was going into Herald Night. I was like... 
I was invested in UCB. I was going to shows as often as I could. And, you know, uh, luckily they're very cheap when you're a student there. So I could make it work. And, you know, between all the different jobs, Uber, Postmates, Lyft, and all those different things I was doing, I tried to stay afloat. Improv classes can be really expensive when you're broke. Uh, so, yeah, I just kept going on auditions and failing. I was taking improv classes, which I loved. And I was reading books and listening to a lot of podcasts about these different things. So I was eating it up, but I wasn't really going anywhere. I was just taking classes and learning and learning and learning. But nothing much outside of that was happening. And uh, during this time, I finally found some career stability as well. Uh, I started working at a middle school in, a, uh, in L.A. We'll just leave it at that. I was working in middle school in L.A., um, just in their after-school program, kind of helping out. And I actually, while I was taking improv classes outside at UCB, I was thrown into teaching an improv class with kids during the after-school program. And uh, in truth, I had little experience uh, working with kids. I had done it a little bit volunteering growing up, but not as like the classroom head, the head of the classroom. So that was a bit dicey. But I started working there. It was a good job, and I knew I was going to stick with it. So I was working at school, taking improv classes, and life was pretty good. I mean, the auditions were still failing, but I found some stability in my life. And that's, that's kind of how that went. Wow, okay. So you found some stability in your job after like the 85,000 jobs that you said you had, uh, working at Geek Squad or Target or an ice cream place or whatever. Um, you were taking the UCB improv classes, um, and then you started working at the school, an after-school program, and things were going well. And, you know, that sounds really good, but I know uh, in your story that there's kind of a turn here and things change. Tell me about that. Yeah, so all these things were happening, and then uh, late 2017 is kind of when things got tough. So I had been working in the school. It was going well. You know, I had some more opportunities to work a little more hours, and I wanted to continue to do that because I enjoyed my work, and I wasn't always good at it. You know, I tried to be the fun teacher, but I wasn't always good about being strict when I needed to. Uh but yeah, it's after school, so it's a little little different. But I would also help out during the day, monitor lunch, make copies, different things like that. And, um, you know, it's just a time in my life where money was tight. Uh, I remember right around then I got into a car accident, which was pretty tough. And just, you know, money was stretched thin. So I had taken the, like, 301 level class at UCB. I just finished it. I uh, was so excited to move on to 401 because it's a big deal. And then I just kind of, the money ran out. Uh, things got busy with work, uh, acting stuff started to dry up. And at that point my agent had dropped me cause I hadn't really booked anything. I booked like one dumb part in a feature film that still hasn't come out, uh, called the pastor starring Kevin Sorbo, which if you know about Kevin Sorbo, maybe it's good. Uh, the movie that I was technically in with him didn't come out. I had a very small part anyway. That's a random story, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, the money ran out. Uh, life is hard, and I think I was just kind of getting depressed with where I was. I just was always struggling with money. Uh, the acting stuff hadn't really gone well. My romantic life at the time was bad, so I think I was just generally kind of sinking into this depression of my early 20s, post-college, broke. Uh, you're working a job that's good, but is it where you want to be? And really, for 2017 and 2018 part of 2018, I was just kind of in this depression. I just kind of do work. I'd go home and, you know, wouldn't really amount to anything or do anything significant. Just spent a lot of time passing time. You know, I was still interested in comedy, but I just didn't have the money and everything was so expensive. And 
I just kind of sunk away from performing. And uh, for a lot of 2017, I didn't do a ton of that. I, w- I was involved uh, here and there uh, at, a, at a local theater uh, where I actually did get pretty involved from like 2017, 2018 in there. Um. And I did some really cool stuff. Uh, a great person, uh, my friend Cameron Parker, him and I, uh, not him and I, it was all him. Um, he started doing this improvised Batman show called Bat Night that I got to be a part of and play a variety of different roles, which was a ton of fun. And just some cool local theater, kind of street theater stuff, like small space, 30 seats, you know, would get people in the door. I helped do a podcast at this small theater called The Mosaic Lizard with this guy named Jay Parker. He was the owner of the theater. I did a lot of cool stuff, but like kind of indie, underground, very low level. And I think I enjoyed doing that stuff, but I was just depressed about the rest of my life. And so after a while, unfortunately, that theater closed down. And then I just kind of fully focused on my work in education. I said, you know what? I need to make a career out of this because I'm depressed about money. I need to do some things to start making a little more money. So uh, what that led to was that I I worked my way up and got promoted at the school and eventually became a... uh, computer science and robotics teacher, which, as you know, I have a degree in acting. So that makes a ton of sense. But uh, luckily for me, I've always been interested in technology, and that's another passion I have. So I started doing that. And um, yeah, so I was hired in that position in 2019 as that computer science and robotics teacher early that year. So I finished out that school year as that position. And, uh, you know, once you become a teacher, that that pretty much dominates your life. You can't really do anything else. And especially for this uh, school that I worked at, it's pretty serious. And I was a teacher there at that school for three years. I actually just stopped being a teacher in June 2022. So I was the computer science and robotics teacher for three years. And I absolutely loved it and hated it at the same time. What I loved was that the kids were awesome. And the best part of working at a school is the kids that are there and getting to spend time with them and build relationships and then build robots and code websites. Uh, so I got to teach cool subjects and I got to work with amazing kids. Uh, I taught fifth through eighth grade. So I taught everybody at the school. I knew everybody. And uh, that school is also where I met my now wife. So I'm always thankful for that. But while I was at this school, I think slowly over time I started, uh, you know, I was less depressed about my financial situation, but was more depressed because I wasn't doing anything that I wanted to be doing. I wasn't performing. I wasn't acting. I wasn't writing. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't improvising. And I just kind of slowly year after year sunk into this depression. And it wasn't really until the COVID pandemic hit where I had a lot more time at home because I was teaching from home uh, to think about these things and think about what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew at the end of the day that I was like, I, I can't be a teacher forever because I know I just can't. I, I don't know that I have the skill to be strong enough. And by strong, I mean like strict as a teacher when you need to be. I like to have fun, and I had the luxury of being able to be more fun because I taught computer science and robotics. You know, I wasn't teaching math. Um, So I realized it was not where I wanted to stay long-term, and it was just draining and sucking the soul out of me, this job. So I had to find a way, change my career, and get back involved in comedy. And a lot of that push came from two things, therapy and my now wife. So shout-out, Dee. You're amazing. And uh, shout-out therapy, Brian. He's my therapist. He's a great guy. It kind of helps get me back on track from this depression and this funk and this kind of pit I had found myself in that I dug for myself. And uh, in truth, the pandemic, you know, it, it gave me time to reflect on a lot of these things. And 
I kind of came to this conclusion that I need to push myself to be uncomfortable. So in um, 20, yeah, I guess that was 2021. When I found IFTP, that was kind of the start of my journey of like, I'm getting back into performing and doing comedy. I need to get back on this horse. If this is something I want to be doing, I need to make it happen for myself. You know, I can't wait on anyone else. I need to get out there and just be doing it. And uh, now that's where it's led me today. So like I said, I got involved with IFTP in 2021. Uh, and it's helped bring me to where I am now. IFTP kind of pulled me out of this funk and gave me a place every week where I could go and have fun and I could laugh and I could get up and just be silly and hilarious and kind of let go of the pressures of the world and I could spend time with great people and I could just perform the art that I love every week. And I am so very, very lucky that that led to opportunities here, uh, getting to do shows and getting... Uh, to move into things now, like getting to do a podcast. And uh, I also, in my personal life, change careers. Uh, I'm no longer a teacher. I, I, I work in IT now, which I love because it gives me more time to come here to IFTP and do things because uh, it's the place I, I love to be and I love to be a part of this community and to get to help contribute uh, and do a podcast or teach a sketch class or help set up a table, I don't know, go to improv camp, you know, incredible things like that. So I, I, am, I am very blessed to be here in the studio uh, and for the opportunities it's given me and for the kindness and the, the joy it has brought. It's, it's really been a huge part of kind of the, the change I've seen for myself and how I've been feeling and depression and, you know, having a, a zest for life rather than trying to make it pass by faster. Whew. Wow. Okay. So improv. Yeah, it sounds like you had a bit of a, bit of a hiatus there from performing and I know teaching and uh, that work is is really tough and shout out to all the teachers and educators out there the work you do is so 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 important and I wish we lived in a country that valued the work that you do more that's another story but shout out all the teachers out there thank you for what you do it's really important stuff all right, so Michael, um, thank you for kind of talking to us about that journey and what led you here to where you are now at IFTP, here doing this podcast, hopefully doing the sketch class again coming up soon, and uh, just comedy in general, getting back on that horse and saying, hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, so there's just a couple of questions I want to ask you, and then we're going to get to our games, because uh, there's no better game than watching someone play with themselves. Anyway. Uh, one question I want to ask you, and I think you've gotten into this a little bit, but what has been kind of the impact of improv in your life? You shared your story, but sum it up. Give us the impact. What has improv done for you? Whew. Well, uh, you know, improv has done a lot, and I think I've had the chance uh, over the episodes here and there to kind of give nuggets and kind of share my opinion and how I feel about improv here and there. But I think for me, uh, what I've realized is how I view improv has changed over time, and it's changed a lot specifically ever since joining this studio. I think for a long time, specifically in college, I just viewed improv as, you know, it was like, if I get good at improv, that means I'm going to get on SNL. And that's all I really wanted. You know, I wanted so much from improv. I wanted improv to take me to comedy heights. And that's how I viewed it, you know? That's uh, why when I went to UCB and did different things like that, taking a class at Groundlings, you know? Kind of just saw it as like, improv is going to get me to this place. You know, improv, make me funny, make me go places. 
But I, I think now as I've gotten older and just spending time here at Improv for the People and doing Improv for the Podcast, hearing all these people share their incredible stories is when, when I view improv like that, I put it inside a box. And it's almost selfish in that I'm going like, improv, what are you going to do for me today? Uh, you're going to get Lorne Michaels in this room. You're going to get, you know, blah, 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 the head of Comedy Central in this room. Which is really, I think, improv has been so much more for that for me. Um, as I often like to say, improv lessons are life lessons. Improv has helped me realize the importance of listening, active listening. Um, you know, in my personal relationships, at work, you know, the importance of the attention to detail and calling back on things that you hear in the moment that might be important down the road. Uh, it's helped me be collaborative and work on things with other people. You know, I'm not a perfect person. Improv has not made me a perfect person. But I think it helps me realize I can keep getting better and I can keep improving. And that's what improv gives you the chance to do. And life often does too. Improv is just a more controlled environment to do that, right? You get to get up and every time you do a scene, you hope that you can do the scene a little better than the last time you did a scene. And at the end of the day, I love the iterative nature of improv in that way, the iterative, iterative nature of comedy in that way. It's, it's brutal and forgiving at the same time because you can suck, but you can find another chance always, always. And I think I realized that's why I enjoyed teaching something like computer science too, is because of the work I've also done in comedy where computer science is about trying to do something you know, going through a design thinking process and you go through it over and over and over again as you slowly iterator iteratively, you know, through iteration, gosh, that's a hard word, uh, improve upon what you're doing, you know, and you fail and fail and fail and fail. Hey, it's scientific. You learn from these mistakes and you continue to improve. That's how we've invented anything. And I think that's the same with comedy and improvisation too. You fail, you fail, but you fail a little less every time and you get a little better every time. And then other times you feel hard again, but you're always learning and taking something away. And you're failing in new ways, oftentimes, and not ever the same one. And I think that there's such a crossover there between the art of improvisation, the art of comedy, and uh, something as scientific as computer science or robotics and coding. Uh, and I think that's something I've really realized, you know, kind of merging those two parts of myself. And improv for me, I want to open it up so much more and not improv be limited to short form slapstick making jokes. I'm a funny man. You know, I do love all that stuff too. And I am always grateful for, you know, kind of these American staples of Saturday night live and comedy theater and all of that. But I think for myself, I limited my own enjoyment of improv because, you know, if I didn't get to this certain place, that means I failed. I'm a failure as a comedian. I'm a failure as an improviser. When really I don't think that's true because as an improviser, I've gotten to work with so many incredible people. I've met some amazing folks. I've gotten to do a podcast where I hear amazing stories and how people have been helped by improv, how it's improved their lives and helped them overcome things. And it's helped me overcome things too. And I, Sid and I talked about it a few episodes back, uh, you know, uh, talking about improv as therapy. I think that's something that's been true for me. It's given me a place to experience joy even in my lowest moments. So improv is so much more than just comedic vehicle. You know, it is great for comedy. It's great for drama. But it's great for just letting you be you and for letting you learn from mistakes. And that's something that applies to life every day because life is full of mistakes. 
And in life, you either choose to learn from them or choose to keep repeating them. So you always want to strive to be making different mistakes, not the same ones over and over. So I think that's how improv has impacted my life. Improv lessons are life lessons. And I think my time here at IFTP has opened up my perspective and my view of it. It's not just a vehicle for comedy. Hoo-wee! Well, not to toot my own horn, but toot toot. Toot my own horn. Uh, well said, Michael. Well said. And I think, yeah, you're right. It's not making the same mistakes over and over. It's moving forward to make different ones. Um, because we're always going to make mistakes. That's part of being human, right? The human condition. So my last question for you tonight, before we get into some games. What is, what's next for you in improv, in your comedy journey? What, what are your next steps? Well, uh, you know, uh, Lord willing, I want to continue doing things here at IFTP. Um, uh, there are some incredible folks here on faculty. You know, Matt, of course, has given me so many opportunities Ava, Benjamin, Jamie. I mean, these people are all incredible, and they're all such amazing teachers uh, and so welcoming and inviting. I think a big thing for me is that I want to continue doing work here at Improv for the People. I want to continue doing this podcast. Uh, I'm hoping to teach more sketch classes this upcoming year in 2023. Uh, we've got one coming up. Please sign up. Uh, if you go to improvforthepeople.com, I think you can find signups for it on there. Uh yeah, so continuing to teach the sketch class and I think creating new opportunities here at the theater and then also outside of IFTP, I want to continue to push myself working in comedy. And I think a big thing for me is maybe coming to terms with as I get older and deal with the realities of life of like things like I want to have a family and, you know, uh, I live in a very expensive city. I think it's important for me to realize that I think I'm finding ways to be happy like Comedy and performing needs to be a part of my life in some capacity, always. And that's important. And it's okay if I don't go and become the most famous person, you know, in the world. It's okay if I don't become the next uh, Robin Williams. I'm obviously not on his level. I'm just using that as an example. I am not Robin Williams or anywhere close. Just an example. But I think so long as I have the opportunities to perform and do those things, that's all, that's all I want, you know. It's not about the money. It's about getting to enjoy it. And I do need to have a day job that, you know, where I can be stable and provide and <laughs> things like that. Uh, but I need to find time to do this stuff too. And I want to expand that this year, teaching sketch classes, continuing to do the podcast, uh, writing more things, putting things online, maybe a screenplay, who knows? I want to push myself in all those ways this year. And I think that's, that's kind of what's next for my comedy journey is, you know, continuing to make myself be uncomfortable and continuing to make the new mistakes in what I do. All right. Well, well said, Michael. Uh, I'm excited to see where your comedy journey takes you next. It is January 2023. It's, uh, I think, the 5th. So we'll see uh, what happens in the future later this year. It'll be interesting maybe to revisit that in a future episode with a lot of these folks we've talked to. So with that said, I think we should get into some games. All right. So this first game that we are going to play uh, is, of course, called Totally Rantum. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in this game, Michael, uh, what we're going to do is that I'm going to give you a random topic, and you are going to go on an improvised rant about that topic. Um, 
until I black you out. All right, so that's what we're going to do. This game is called Totally Rant. Um, and uh, your random topic that you're going to rant about is World War One. All right, so here's the thing about World War One that I don't really get. How'd they know to call World War One? Like, did they already know there was going to be another one later? Like, that's just really, the foresight there is just incredible. Incredible. They knew to call World War One. They're like, yo, this war is going to be a big deal, but it's only going to be the first one, okay? They're, just wait. This one's bad, but just wait. Uh, World War One is crazy. I also just, why did they, why did we call it mustard gas? Because in mustard gas, that just sounds like something you get after eating too many hot dogs. You know, like that's not scary. It's more just gross. Like, oh, Dave's got mustard gas. You know, it's not like, do you think soldiers like heard that? Like mustard gas are like, okay, big deal. Like whatever. Yeah. Like we know like the German dudes over there, they're probably eating some sausages, you know, while they're in the trenches. I just, I don't know. We could have done better. If you wanted, if you needed to look out for it, you should have named it something more threatening, you know, just like murder gas. You know, mustard gas just sounds too nice, too silly. Like, it sounds like something that would be in a comedy movie. Like, yeah, mustard gas. <laughs> yeah, but World War One. I, I mean, they, they wore those hats with the little points on top, which just looked like tiny Christmas trees, so that's kind of silly. Um, I just think the war of attrition is stupid. You know, it's just like, it's like there were two groups of dudes at the beach and they both dug trenches and then just threw things at each other for a while. You know, nobody, nobody accomplished anything. They just sat there for days, months. Uh, you know, World War I, they just kind of mess around, wasting time. And I know it all started with, uh, with an assassination, you know, Archduke and uh, the, the Franz Ferdinand, also a great band. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think the sequel... You know, they knew there was going to be a sequel and that the sequel would be a stronger candidate uh, historically. Yeah, so that's my take on World War One. Blackout! All right, well done, well done, well done. All right, so that's, uh, that's our first game. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's a wild one. That's a wild one. Um, so for this next game, uh, this one is going to be a real challenge. Uh, but I believe in you. I think you're going to be able to do it. This one is actually called Two Wolves, right? And uh, the name comes from the saying that uh, a dear friend, my friend Kobe, once said, uh, inside of you there are two wolves. Wolves. Oh! And they're always dueling. So in this game, you're going to show us the two wolves dueling inside of you because uh, you're going to, I'm going to give you a debate topic, and you're going to have to debate yourself, Right? You're going to have to debate yourself. Uh, so that's why there's the two wol two wolves dueling inside of you <laughs> because you're debating yourself. All right, so the debate topic I have for you, Michael, is uh, going to be uh, one wolf is going to say that dogs are better than cats, and the other wolf is going to say that cats are better than dogs. All right, so that's our debate topic, and then whenever you're ready. All right, so dogs are way better than cats and here's why here's why dogs are better than cats and it goes back to a simple phrase uh dogs are man's best friend
need I say more? Everybody wants a best friend. Boom, get a dog. Boom, you got a best friend. Dogs are better than cats. Hold the applause. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, dogs are better than cats because they're man's best friend. But what about women, huh? Yeah, you didn't include them in that saying. So I think cats are better than dogs in that way because cats don't specify gender. Cats can be around anybody. Hmm? You ever think of that? Huh? And you know what's cool about cats also? They're independent. You know, cats are not needy. Dogs are so needy and whiny and annoying. You have to do everything for them. But cats, they'll get it done. It's like dogs are your unemployed roommate and cats are full-time employees. They like to hang out sometimes. Pretty dope. Ah, but consider this. Yes, cats are more independent. But doesn't it feel good to sometimes be relied upon? You know, you see that cute little furry guy come up and uh, you just say, oh, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, hey, buddy. And then you get to help them out and they really appreciate it, you know? A dog makes you feel appreciated. And that's special. You know, you see your dog, oh, hey, buddy, hey, buddy. You come home from work, oh, the dog's all hyped and like, oh, oh, you know, like loses it for you and that's there's no better feeling than that you know a dog welcoming you or greeting you like that's like mm, peak human experience right there can't be beat it dogs are better than cats dogs are better than cats ah but that's where you're wrong because the dog's desperation is just so sad and pathetic and weak cats are strong cats are hunters right cats will bring you dead animals to show their strength but cats will also take care of their business. They'll go poop in the litter box. And sure, it's stinky, but it's done. It's taken care of, you know? It's out of the way. And cats are so athletic and agile. They always land on their feet. They live way longer because they got nine lives. You know, cats aren't going to break your heart like dogs do. You know, the reason they make Marley and me is for people who like to feel sad. But luckily, there's no movies that are about sad cats because cats live so dang long, right? Nine lives. All the cat movies are dope and happy. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, right? No sad movies about weak dogs dying. Cats are better than dogs. Oh, boo. Look, you raised some really good points. And yes, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, is a really great movie. Antonio Banderas does it again and again, keeping the Shrek franchise alive. But I'm going to ask you one simple question that I think will end this debate. And I'm going to figuratively drop the mic. Something you just can't ask cats. Who's a good boy? Blackout. Oh, got me there. Wow, those two wolves were dueling oh my goodness oh my goodness all right all right well uh that was great that was great thank you for participating in that spirited debate that is an intense one and uh frankly i think one that uh people need to have more often all right so let's get to our final game michael uh so this one is a special one that i cooked up for you uh this game is called Gollum monologue uh and the reason i chose this game is that a uh, little birdie told me that 
you like to do a Gollum Smeagol voice. So we'd like to hear that, and uh, you're going to read a monologue from a famous classic motion picture for us. Not class- it's not classic yet, but it is a very popular, influential motion picture. Uh, I'm saying it's not classic because it came out during my lifetime, so it's not classic yet. I am young. Uh, so you're going to read us that monologue in your uh, best Gollum Smeagol impression. We just want to hear it. I'm just pimping you right now. That's all this really is. So uh, uh, you'll go ahead and you'll take the phone and then uh, whenever you're ready. All right. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best. But you are a slave, no, 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 we're not a slave. Master loves us. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Come. Born inside a prison that you cannot smell, taste, or touch. A prison for your mind. No, 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 we don't like it. We don't like it. Quiet. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. <laughs> you have to experience it for yourself. No, 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 please, please, no, no. This is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back! You take the blue pill, and the story ends. You wake in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. I'll take the blue pill. Give it to me. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I'll show you the deep rabbit hole. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth. Nothing more. No, go away. Go away. Blackout. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you made Lawrence Fishburne proud. Uh, shout out Morpheus from The Matrix. Uh, you know, I'm going to be honest, that did get a little dicey at the end there. But, uh, you know, it can be hard to do that impression when you're not speaking Gollum's regular words. So I get it. But, uh, you know, well done, well done, well done. We'll work on it. And I'll fix it in post. But anyway, uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, it was great interviewing myself. Uh, yeah. uh, so, uh, Michael, any last words you want to leave us with before we go today? Yes. Uh, well, again, uh, thank you so much, Michael, for having me. Thank you for letting me be on Improv for the podcast, uh, the show that, in a way, I've been on every week. Uh, yeah, I just want to say um, I'm so thankful to be a part of Improv for the People. Uh, I'm so thankful to have discovered Improv and gotten to do comedy and getting to do this show. I think... You know, I would encourage, as always, our listeners out there, you know, if you if you do improv, please keep doing it. We love it that you're here. And the more people that do improv, the better improv is as an art, the better our studio is as a community or whatever community or improv group you're a part of, wherever you're at. Uh, also, don't limit yourself, you know. Push yourself to do things even if you fail or make mistakes. Because that's the only way you're going to learn and you're going to grow. And that applies to anything you do in life. Wow. Well, well said, Michael. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of Improv for the Podcast. As always, if you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes. Or if you want to check us out on any of our social media, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, And as always, uh, thank you for listening to Improv for the Podcast. 
Until then, we'll see you next time. Improv for the podcast was created by Matt Moore and Michael Lee Evans. Edited and produced by Michael Lee Evans. And finally, presented by Improv for the People. Interested in more IFTP? You can visit us at improvforthepeople.com or on our socials, such as Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, new episodes are released weekly. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.